Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Hello. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Julian... I always mess up your name. I'm sorry, Julian. That's okay. Uh, Julian Fava. Don't worry about it. Julian is perfectly fine. Yeah, I'm like, my, my German is bad. A little rusty. Yeah. No, I don't speak German. Anyway, we've had you on a couple of other shows talking about Docker. We've talked about it on JavaScript Jabber, talked about it on Elixir Mix. And it turns out that recently you did a workshop at RailsConf about, uh, you know, about Docker and Dockerizing Rails. And uh, yeah, so we got you on the show to talk about Docker once again. Yeah, awesome. Excited to be here. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So uh, just briefly, do you, is there anything else that people ought to know about you? I know you have a Docker course, and we've talked about that on the other shows as well. Right, right. I, uh, I have this Docker course online at learndocker.online. It's, uh, it's free, and I dump all the knowledge I have about Docker onto you in, I don't know, I think like 11 hours of videos or so. Pretty comprehensive. Check it out if you, yeah, if you want to dive in. And besides that, I, I teach people about Docker and containers in, with this, this course and the workshop and, and in person in companies. Nice. Just out of curiosity, how many total videos is that? 300-ish. <laughs> yeah, it was worth three months of my life. <laughs> That's awesome. So Dockerizing Rails. I mean, we've talked in general terms, I think, about Docker. We've talked a little bit about running Ruby and Docker. But yeah, I mean, what, what are kind of the, the big major points when it comes to Dockerizing Rails? And this is um, a particular interest to me because I have an app that I'm seriously looking at Dockerizing and then just pushing to a cloud somewhere and not worrying about all the server setup. And- Got you. So I would say the major thing that you have to do when you want to approach that is ask yourself if you really want to do it. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I dockerize all my Rails applications, but if I have a small application that I just want to run, I, I still put it on Heroku. Like a platform as a service provider is still the, the easiest way to roll. And uh, just because Docker is around and an option doesn't mean it's necessarily the right option. Right. If you want to go and do it, um, I would say it makes sense if you have a certain scale or need some flexibility in terms of, you know, you have maybe this Rails monolith and you have a couple of microservices around it and you just want to like, spin this whole system up as a, like a you know, like holistic architecture, so to speak. In that case, you have to ask yourself, um, which container orchestration software do I want to go with? Do I want to use Kubernetes or do I want to use something that's managed like um, AWS Elastic Container Services or do I want to use Docker Swarm? So there's, there's a bunch of decisions to be made. There's no correct answer in either way. Uh, it's, it always depends. 
the thing that's always working for me, regardless of whether I go to Heroku or a containerized um, hosted service, is uh, dockerizing my Rails applications for the development process, which makes my life super easy. So one quick question about that. What's your default go-to base image that you use? Do you use the Ruby Alpine or do you use something like the Ubuntu and then install Ruby manually? I tend to go with the the Ruby base image that is provided and I mostly use the Alpine version just because it's nice and saves some bandwidth. Nice and small and saves some bandwidth. And so for like a Rails application that might have some extra dependencies, let's say if you're doing image manipulation or something, mm-hmm. so you need like the image magic libraries and stuff like that. Do you run into problems with getting those installed on the Alpine version or is it pretty self-explanatory? It's pretty self-explanatory. Instead of, you know, using AppGet, you're using APK. It's just a, a different package manager. But ultimately, you, you just write this Docker file, you specify your base image, and then you run arbitrary shell commands in the context of this, this container image that you're creating to install additional tools. Like the Ruby gems you need, the uh, C compiler you need for native extensions, um, maybe a different version of Bundler and whatsoever. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so why would someone consider using Docker for their local development environment when they have, you know, just Ruby already installed on their primary OS? So for me, what I get out of Docker, it prevents me from wasting time on setting up my workstation. All I need on my workstation is uh, Docker, Bash, and my IDE that I use to develop. And everything else is just part of the projects that I clone. So I join my join another team in my company. I clone the repo. I run a single script that just executes a bunch of Docker commands and the whole application is up and running and I can iterate on it without actually having to understand its dependencies, how it is set up or what is required. And I know that the script that I'm executing will always work because it's, it's executing these commands in an isolated environment that is, um, that is well-defined and is used by all other developers. So one thing that we've kind of We've talked about this in the past on a few other episodes, but I mean, you mentioned it a little bit. What do you say to the people who have problems running Docker in development because it's slow, it has it has trouble accessing the file system? Um, I know there's tools like Docker Sync, but I've tried setting that up in the past and I didn't really see an improvement or I just didn't set it up correctly. So what do you say to the people that are like, yeah, Docker is great, run it in production, but don't use it in development? So I guess my take on this is, just like everything else, Docker is a tool. And if you don't feel any of the, the pain with, with your current setup, like, oh, um, things are complicated to get up and running. It's like hard to keep track of stuff. Um, I like, need to switch between projects over and over again or onboard new employees, then um, yeah, Docker might just make your life more complicated. The, the common reasons or the common things that people say like, oh, it's slow or um, I don't know how to troubleshoot when things go wrong are, I think, a side effect of people not learning the tool first and just trying to use it. And Docker did a really, really great job on making it easy to use. So you can get like the, you know, first 80% of how Docker works in a day or two, and you can be productive. And you can even just invest two hours and do a tutorial and you get something up and running, but it will not work the way you expect it to work. And you need to invest the time to, you know, to learn the underlying functionalities and technologies that make all of this work so that you actually have a good experience. 
Yeah, and Docker was originally based off of LXC, which is Linux containers. And Linux containers, historically, if we're talking about just speed comparison versus bare metal, so your actual laptop or computer versus this virtualized environment, is about 3% overhead. So you are going to have about a 3% loss in speed using Docker versus having it on your bare metal. But you do get the benefits, like you were saying, Julian, with having a consistent development environment. One that you don't, it doesn't matter what computer you go to, whether it's Windows, Linux, or to a Mac, Docker can work the same on all of those. And you don't have to worry about what your development environment really is because it's all kind of containerized. So anyone who's listening who's really worried about speed, it's so negligible that you're not even going to really notice it because 3% overhead's really not that bad. Totally. I would I would push back just a tiny bit. I have noticed, like, for most things, it's totally fine. But if I'm running a command like bundle exec rubocop-a, for instance... It takes much longer to run that command in Docker than it does on my normal machine. Now, there, not every command takes longer, but I have noticed that running some commands that require you to like bundle exec a gem do take longer than it would otherwise. Yeah. So the reason for that is that you're probably on macOS. And containers are ultimately just processes on an operating system. That means that Linux container have to run on a Linux operating system. That means on your Mac, if you run a Docker container, Docker actually runs this container in a virtual machine. Now, if this container needs to access files on your local file system on your Mac, the Mac somehow needs to like share these files with that virtual machine. Docker came up with a file system driver, a shared file system driver called OSXFS. And this driver is somewhat slow because it tries to guarantee perfect consistency between the files on your local system and what you can see in the virtual machine. So there's a significant overhead if you're trying to read files, especially if it's a lot of small files. The way to get around that is the OSFX, OSXFS driver supports a cached option that loses up those consistency guarantees a little bit, which is totally fine for source code. That's going to speed up, I don't know, probably like, you know, times five, times 10. Not sure, I haven't looked at the stats in a while, but it makes it quite a bit faster. And then the other thing you can do if that is not fast enough is you can use a tool like uh, Docker Sync, which basically synchronizes the source code from your local workstation into the virtual machine using Unison, which is a bidirectional file synchronizer. And once you do that, there's like, you know, a couple nanoseconds of delay between the file synchronization. But the access to the files in the container work with native speed. So you basically don't have any overhead there. The issue with Docker Sync is that it's kind of another tool you have to set up and configure and know how to use. So I'm personally not a big fan. What we use is another tool called Blitz. It's German for lightning. And it basically just adds another container to your setup and this container performs the synchronization. So it's the, the same technology under the hood, but all you have to do is, hey, add this little bit of configuration to my Docker Compose file and I'm all set up. If you're syncing files over, I'm assuming this is like code files and things like that. Correct. Um, in your Docker container, do you run the development environment then so that it'll do kind of the hot update that Rails does? Or do you run it in the production environment and then, you know, have to remind it to restart? Can you rephrase? Not sure. I'm, I'm totally following. So if you're running, let's say you do like a Rails server. Yep. It runs it in development mode. And so changes to most of the files in your Rails app 
will get reflected into the running app and mm-hmm. you don't actually have to restart the server. Yep. If you run in production mode, then if you make changes to the code files, it won't actually reflect those changes in until you restart the web server. Got you. And so, so uh, what I'm wondering is, is yeah, so assuming that it's syncing the files for you, is there some piece of that that also goes in and runs the command to you know, tell uh, Nginx and Passenger or Puma or whatever to start over? So I, I only use this file code synchronization in development. Right. And I, I run my Rails server in, in development mode. That means that if Unison synchronizes the files, a file system event is triggered that tells, mm-hmm. tells Rails, hey, this file has changed. Right. Reload it. So all of this, this functionality is so still there. Just, yeah, it just yeah. works out of the box. Works out of the box. And um, you can also utilize things like Spring or Soyuz. I don't know if that's still a thing for, mm-hmm. for application preloading. So all of these, these niceties that we have in a Rails development environment locally on our workstation also work in Docker. I, I haven't seen okay. anything that doesn't work. And, but if you change your dependencies, then do you have to actually scrap your Docker container and rebuild it? If you change the system, the Docker file itself, in terms of, oh, you add another system library or system right. then you have to. If you are only adding a gem or switching between branches with different gems, there are certain tricks you can do to get around rebuilding the Docker file. What I tend to do is I install all my gems into a Docker volume, which is, is a piece of storage that is not bound to the lifecycle of a container. So it just sticks around. And I attach this volume to the, uh, I think it's user local bundle directory, which contains all the gems in a mm-hmm. container. So I basically have this cache with all the gems from all the branches and just overlay the, the gems that are in the, the Docker image at runtime. Yeah, and for the Docker sync and using Kubernetes, you know, that kind of thing really won't work because the Docker images within Kubernetes or the containers rather really don't have any guaranteed uptime because you have health checks and it'll destroy them. So there's actually a synchronization thing that I've used in the past called Cloud Native Development, CND, which allows you to create a sync-like thing for your local development environment. So if you kind of take your development environment with Docker a step further and have a local Kubernetes development environment, sometimes you want to be able to reflect the changes on your Kubernetes instance without having to redeploy a container or a pod. So CND will do something very similar to that. And to kind of point back to Chuck's question about Rails automatically refreshing, I haven't ever really experienced a problem where it would not refresh the instance with the synchronized code. What about front-end code and assets? Well, I guess the Rails server handles all that for you. So do you have two Docker files then, one for production and one for development? It's usually controlled by environment variables. Okay. So you just sell it to run with the production environment and production and it does the right thing. Yep. I've also seen people use a different Docker code file for production development, not a different Docker file. Yeah. I think in, in an ideal world, you keep your Docker files the same for production and development just to, you know, have more of a, a feature parity or mm-hmm. environment parity between the pre-production and development. There's also a concept where you can use multi-stage builds to say, oh, in this Docker file, I want to basically for development install some additional tooling like a bash shell or a debugger or my only development gems, etc. So you can still have this, this one base Docker file that 
documents everything that is going on, uh, but slightly different settings for development and production where it makes sense. Yeah. What about running tests and things? Do you do that in Docker or do you just run that on your local machine? I do everything in Docker. I Up until two weeks ago, Ruby on my workstation was actually broken and just didn't work because Brew updated some library and RBN broke. And I was just, I didn't feel like investing time into it. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have to uh, because everything runs in containers. Yeah, I've been there, especially when MySQL gets messed up or yeah, yeah, your Ruby versions get messed up. Yeah, totally. Docker erases all of that. Yeah, and it's like, oh, this update for read line and now I can't press the up key in Rails console anymore and, and things like that. So yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of what we've been talking about kind of goes back, I mean, you mentioned this in the show notes, but it takes like 80% of like getting start, started with Docker, you can one to two days and then all the other stuff like the enhancements and like better configuration and fine tuning your Docker Compose or your Docker file and speed enhancements and things like that. Those are the remaining 20%. And those do take a lot more time. And you kind of have to invest more learning about it to get that optimally configured. Yeah, totally. So I hope at some point that we have uh, some like templates that we can use so that instead of having to reinvent the wheel every time over and over again for every project, we are just. Applying this template for a Rails application, maybe change a couple environment variables in our .env file, and and that's it. And I think uh, my friends from Hint.io currently work on something called Railstock, which is essentially that, like a repo you clone into your Rails application, and it just reconfigures Docker for you. And um, what I'm trying to do with my workshop is... I want to teach people these, you know, the first 80%, I hope they know some of that. And then the remaining 20% is like the focus of the workshop where we get into these like small tweaks that you can do that really, really benefit you in your day-to-day. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting more and more upset that I had to miss your workshop at RailsConf this year. You should go to railswithdocker.com and... Oh, uh, I will. Give me your email address. <laughs> I'm not going to spam anyone, but I'm in the process of putting everything from the workshop into written documents and potentially some videos and yeah, put that online and it's going to be free, but I'm generally, I need motivation to do things. So some people being interested in signing up uh, makes me putting the content out faster. And I think the, the first part is probably going to be released in the next two to three weeks. So yeah, I, I kind of want to play with this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll admit I really haven't, done anything like this before. I've, I've kind of spun up Docker containers once or twice, but I haven't done it with a Rails app. And so I'm kind of wondering, do I just create the Docker file and then go for it? You know, have Docker installed on my machine or is there more to it than that? The steps in a nutshell are you create a Docker file that sets up the internal dependencies for your application, the system libraries, system utilities, and, and Ruby gems, etc. And then you probably need a Docker Compose file a Docker Compose file is a YAML file that describes a multi-container application so that you can run your Postgres and your Redis and whatever else you need for your application. And you probably also want to run, um, for example, if you run Rails Server and Sidekick, you're going to add two additional containers to your Compose file for each of those services. And that's the 80%, basically. If you have that, you can uh, get rolling and start iterating and start playing around with your application. Do you put Webpacker in its separate container? Yeah. The idea is one concern per container, and Webpacker is definitely a different thing than Rails server. So interesting. So then you're serving assets out of a separate container then, or 
So the Webpack dev server only compiles the assets and puts them in the public folder. So Rails server will still serve those from the public folder, okay. but a different container compiles them. Because you're doing the file system sharing stuff. Yes, yes, correct. And so the way I always encourage people to think about containers is don't see them as like this special thing. Containers are ultimately just processes on your operating system. They're kind of like fancy processes that are isolated from other processes, but ultimately they're just processes. And if you have a question like, oh, how would I run this? Or would I do this in the same container? If you think about it, a container is a process and the answer like usually comes to you naturally. For example, I wouldn't make my Rails application responsible for starting Postgres, right? I would just run Postgres and I would run the Rails server. So I do the exact same thing with, um, with containers. I run one for Postgres, one for the Rails server. Yeah, that makes sense. But it does sound like a nice way of avoiding using things like gem sets and, and stuff like that. Gem, yes. gem sets make me want to bang my head against the wall. Yeah, so. I, <laughs> I feel you. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. You get this completely isolated environment per application. So you can use different versions of Postgres, different Ruby versions, different gems, Redis, whatsoever, without any issues. And yeah, I was going to say, I have another older app that I wind up having to maintain periodically, and it's still in Rails 4, mm-hmm. maybe early Rails 5. But anyway, it's old enough to where it's running on an older version of Ruby. And yeah, so I've been dr- jumping through the RVM hoops to try and get it happy yeah, totally. on my local machine. And I'm just like, this this is painful. Yeah. Yeah, I guess this notion of of wasting time for me. I'm a developer. I want to write code and not, you know, sit around waiting for my workstation mm-hmm. to compile something or get it back up and running. I just want to, yeah, do my job. Yeah, the biggest pain points I found when working on newer Rails applications or newer Ruby version applications versus old ones is that you're eventually going to have a dependency issue. Whether you're developing against like MySQL eight but then you have a MySQL 5.6 application that you're still supporting. Well, now you need two different versions of MySQL running or just with the image manipulation like I was talking about earlier, with Image Magic installing that on your local machine, well, you can install version 6, which is going to be great support for older versions of Ruby on Rails and the older gems. Or if you are developing a newer application, then you're going to be using the latest Image Magic, like 7 or something. So you can run into having to brew unlink your new version of Image Magic to then brew link the old version. And that just causes a lot of different kind of headaches when trying to develop on the same machine a really old application and a new current one. Totally. And it's also super boring work. I I really don't want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. As far as databases go, I think I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the conventional wisdom on those is that you run the database engine in the Docker container because the container can get killed and brought back. But the data itself is stored on the local hard drive somewhere. Yeah, that is correct. Those are these uh, volumes mm-hmm. that, that I mentioned earlier, which is just like a, a persistent piece of storage that lives outside of the life cycle of the container. And this right. can be on your Docker host. This can also be like digital ocean block storage or AWS block storage or right. an NFS share or whatsoever. But yeah, you want to, if your application is stateful, you want to persist the data outside of the container because containers are supposed to be disposable. They're just processes you want to like 
create them, bring them up, bring them down and, and throw them away all the time. But if you are going to be running Docker in production on like Kubernetes or something, I would not recommend going this route with uh, containerizing your database engine. I would ha- use whatever host you have and use the database engines that they provide. So like AWS, RDS or whatever, because you could definitely run into some pain stakes if that container just magically disappears because it failed a health check. Whereas then your application is going to have a certain blip downtime until that container gets back up and running. But on a local development environment, the risk is a lot less if it's down for a minute or something. Totally. So we also do that. We use you know, the AWS and Google provider databases uh, and data stores to, to actually persist data. But for development, staging, and ephemeral environments, we, use, uh, we just run everything in containers because yeah. it's a lot cheaper. We don't have any like, uptime requirements or anything. It's just we want to test something, spin it up, it works, done. Yep, totally agree. Yeah, I will say, if you're starting off with Docker, I think you can summarize what a container, a volume, or an image is very, very quickly. But if you spend some time really learning and understanding what each of those three core pieces are, I think you'll have a lot more success down the road because I find a lot of people don't really understand what they are. They're kind of just these hand-wavy terms like, oh, I know a container, you can destroy and create it, but I don't really understand this volume thing. So my advice, if you're trying to get started with Docker, really like take some time and sit down and really learn what a container of volume and an image are and how they all work and how they coexist with each other. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And it's, it's honestly, it's, it's not that hard. It's going to take some time. But the cool thing, as you mentioned, it's very few concepts that you actually have to learn. The whole trick around Docker is that you just reapply the same, you know, four or five uh, concepts over and over again in, in different ways. It's basically like a, a general purpose language for describing architecture and systems and, and how they, they interact with each other. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure, applications, and logs. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 350 technologies so you can track every layer of your complex microservice architecture all in one place. Distributed tracing for Ruby applications and APM provide end-to-end visibility into requests wherever they go, across hosts, containers, and service boundaries. With rich dashboards, algorithmic alerts, and collaboration tools, Datadog provides your team with the tools they need to quickly troubleshoot and optimize modern applications. See for yourself. Start a 14-day free trial today by visiting DTDG, that's Datadog without the A's and O's, DTDG.co slash Ruby Rogues, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. So in your local development environment, do you use a Docker registry to build and push images just for your local development? I tend to not push the development images anywhere. That usually happens when I, you know, push to GitHub, a CI run, builds a Docker container and, and stores mm-hmm. that in the registry. Okay. But cool. again, if, if you have one application and you want to make your life easy, it's totally valid to do that. Yeah, I do the same thing. Let the CI take care of that to the registry. Yeah, for, for me, it just seems like it's just one step away. And I mentioned this before, you know, from being able to just throw it in the cloud and let the cloud handle a lot of this stuff as well. So it's not just the development stuff that we're talking about where it avoids some of these headaches. You know, I mentioned gem sets before, but man, they, they just, <laughs> those are no fun. And, and figuring out all the other garbage that you have to figure out. But yeah, you know, it makes it easier to share the environment with other folks because it just does all the setup and runs. But yeah, then just sticking it in the cloud and saying, I got to scale a bunch of these, you know, 
scale it up, scale it down as you need, especially if it's going to see any kind of traffic. Yeah, there's just definitely things that containers are going to make a lot easier for you. The part where they see things go wrong is if you just expect the, the system to do everything for you. You still have to set up all of these things. And that um, brings us back yeah. to what Andrew said, like you have to learn it in order to, to be able to use it. Yeah. How do you deal with things once you move to production? And let's say you're running it in the AWS cloud or Azure, or Google, Google Cloud Platform or Oracle Cloud or one of these other ones. You know, you get everything running up there. Mm-hmm. Don't a lot of things wind up getting written to each individual container, like logs and things like that? So how do you, how do you wind up debugging issues as they crop up? So there's a convention. If you're using containers, you should not write log files. You should log to standard out and standard error. And then the really cool thing is that your container platform can just collect these logs by reading the stream of the container and send them to a centralized logging solution or just keep them local. So from my perspective, things like troubleshooting and accessing logs and building solutions around of that becomes a lot easier when you have containers. The reason why people think it's hard is because they have this notion of, oh my God, now there's this distributed system with like yet another failure vector. But again, ultimately, containers are just processes on your operating system. And they give you these contracts for the operation part of uh, the operation side of things where you know how do you get logs, no matter what type of application you're running. You know how to start the application, no matter what language or framework it is written in. You know how to configure it because applications in containers should be configured using environment variables. You have this guarantee for, hey, I'm going to give you this volume to persist your data. You control what is going on and where the volume, uh, where the data is written to. So ultimately, you, you get this really awesome contract between development and operations where no matter what language, what framework or what specialty your application has is always going to behave in a certain way that allows you to troubleshoot it and interact with it in the exact same way. Yeah, yeah the logging piece is interesting. I've heard that talked about a lot. Like, I know I'm currently not doing the best thing for that, where you kind of really do need like a shared logging system. But then I was looking at the uh, table of contents on your course, and there's a section on that. So I'm over here trying to fumble around for my credit card. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, no need to fumble around with your credit card. Uh, p- payments are optional, so just go ahead and enjoy it. So when people start thinking about uh, microservices, I could see where you could get some kind of Compose set up where it's, okay, start 10 containers, right? <laughs> 50 containers, you know, let, let's have some real fun. Let's get a thousand containers. You know, how far can you take this and, and how far is just utter insanity? Yeah, I guess as far as you want, containers are just processes on your operating system. So as long as you have enough uh, file descriptors available to start additional containers, you can start as many as you want. And if one machine isn't sufficient to run all of your containers, then you just add more machines and another machine and another machine. So this, this scales pretty endlessly, I would say. So you can orchestrate across machines? Yeah. There's uh, so not not necessarily in development easily, um, but there's tools like Kubernetes or uh, Docker Swarm, which are container orchestrators, which they basically create this container network between all the nodes for you. So a container on node A can communicate with a container on node B without them having to do any anything okay. special. Yeah, it's such a powerful tool, but deeper and deeper you dive into it, it's just it gets very complex, very quickly. So I think that's why a lot of people are kind of very adverse to the idea. I mean, 
I feel like we went through like a big hype cycle with Docker and it seems to be dying down just a tad as, you know, because we still, there's still a lot of problems that we haven't really solved yet or we haven't created these best practices, at least in the Rails community, I find. But I think like the more and more we talk about it, it is a wonderful, I feel like I've said this in the last time I talked about Docker, but like if we could just, instead of like, okay, Docker's hard, it has these problems and moving on. If we could just come together and, figure out a solution, then we can solve these problems instead of just throwing away or just I try my way for a minute and then Dave tries his way and then neither of us collaborate and then we both give up because neither of our ways work. But maybe if we just combined our efforts, we could solve some of these issues like being Slack or you know shared logging and stuff like that. I feel the same way about Rails and JavaScript frameworks. Just saying. Oh no, we we checked the box. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There's the JavaScript bring up. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. I think ultimately it it boils down to having good material that people can learn from and some examples and standards. I think PHP did a pretty good job for how to develop PHP applications in containers. They have this uh, Laradoc, I think it's called, and and we're just missing that for Ruby and Rails. And hope that's going to change soon. Yeah. And, you know, I'm all for Docker in the development environment if it simplifies the process. You know, if it makes it more complicated on a day-to-day basis, then I think that there's a either not enough knowledge on the team about Docker or it is an added unnecessary complexity. You know, it all depends on each team's situation. And I think it should be evaluated as such. 100%. If you don't feel any of the pain, you won't get any of the benefits that Docker can give you. So there's just no reason to add additional overhead, you know, to your project. So besides gem sets, that's that's my favorite thing that Docker's gonna make go away from me. <laughs> what are the pains that you're gonna be feeling that you're gonna be going, okay, this is kind of a, a red flag that's coming up that's saying, hey, Docker might be a good idea. I guess the, one of the things I, I really love homebrew, but it just like keeps installing stuff on my system and breaking things. And I really love that we have Homebrew, but I don't want Homebrew to manage my database or my Redis and then just upgrade stuff because I forgot to pin something to a version or whatever. I think that if you have multiple services and something like Foreman just isn't cutting it for you. So if you have a database server, you're using Elasticsearch, Redis, Background Workers, the Rails app service, the Webpack dev server, Minio for a mock S3 environment. You know, you you now have like six, seven different services that you need to have up and running along with your database engine and whatever else. Well, having that many things running and trying to keep make sure that they're all up and running consistently can be a pain. So having a Docker Compose file, which will launch containers for all of those eight different services, is definitely going to be a lot easier than trying to maintain those yourself. So in those instances, I can definitely see where Docker on a development environment would be a very sane option. But if you are adding more and more complexities to your Docker instance, like you, instead of having a persistent volume claim for your gems, if you are building your Ruby on Rails application base image from a gem image. So you have one that just builds a gems, you push it up to your local registry, and then you use that as your base image for your Rails applications. Well, I've seen the Docker registry sometimes just magically delete your built images. 
And so then you're going to start having some pain points there with having to then first rebuild the gym images and then build your Rails application container. So it's a give and take on what kind of headaches you want sometimes. But the thing that I do like about just your bare metal development is that you have 100% visibility into what's going on. So you're going to be able to eventually kind of trace back the error. I feel like Docker sometimes adds a extra layer of invisibility to what's going on with your application. So there's a potential of spending more time debugging if something goes wrong. I find that very interesting. I have, I guess, the opposite take on the, the debugging part where with Docker, I know exactly I can access Postgres logs by saying Docker, Docker Compose logs PG. But I have no idea where the, the Postgres logs on my Mac are. And the same is true for other services that I might or might not know well, like, hey, I'm installing this message queuing system that I've never dealt with before. Now I have the ability to run it in this isolated container and I know how to access logs. I know how to start a debugger in the container. I know how to do all these things because I know Docker um, versus if I install it on my Mac, I it's a package that someone created. It writes logs to some place in the file system. I don't know. Maybe the service manager isn't working as expected versus a container. I get this dedicated tools to see, is it up? Is it running? How much CPU? How much memory is it using? And, and all of these things. Yeah, and you can use a tool like Lazy Docker, Kitematic to get even like a even more or better look into those logs as well. So that you can literally just start clicking between the services you're running, between the volumes, between the images and see what's going on. See mm-hmm. like CPU statistics and the logs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, totally. That does kind of bring up a off-topic separate point about using different kind of services. I just that I've experienced myself where I've introduced a new service. You know, let's just take like Elasticsearch, for example. And Elasticsearch is this huge thing that has a lot of possibilities. But if the development team is not really versed in it, and not only, you know, just kind of setting it up on their local environment via Docker, you know, on the bare metal, but then your DevOps team or your deployment team, they don't have the comfortability to support it or maintain it. Then I don't, even if it's a good fit for the application, I think that kind of needs to be taken into consideration as well. Just want to make sure I understood that right. Where are you saying that just adding things to your application, like, oh, this message queuing system or whatsoever might lead people to make the wrong decision because now they can easily add stuff? Not easily add stuff. It's more about maintaining stuff. So adding complexity to your Rails application by extending the number of services you're using has its downsides in that you might create a single point of failure without realizing it, Mm -hmm. or you might have some production issues if that service goes down and your team isn't well-versed on how to really troubleshoot it. Yeah, totally. I I agree. I think... Whether you're using containers, whether it's easy to add services or not, you should always make a conscientious decision about whether adding complexity to your application is worth it or not. And even adding Docker into the mix might increase complexity for you and your team. So if you are, you know, two people working on a single race application that does not have a ton of dependencies, adding additional complexity might be might be the wrong choice. Yeah, and I've I've experienced this specifically with search. It's like, okay, Elasticsearch is the perfect tool to use in this. And then you start using it and then suddenly 
whoever set it all up and understands it isn't around or isn't online or something and everything and everyone else on the team is like i don't know i've never i've never had to do this before yeah I would yeah. say that the upside is with Docker, at least you can like spin it up in development very, very easy, play around with it, get, you know, get to know the system without having to jump through a bunch of hoops to even set it up. But yeah, don't, don't use any tool if you don't really need it. If you don't feel a pain, don't try to solve for, solve for something. Yeah, I was recently working on a large table with over 250 million records and once you get up to those kind of sizes, you know, things can significantly slow down. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, kind of exploring my options like, oh, maybe Elasticsearch would be a good fit to kind of index these things and then query off of. But I ended up just writing some real fancy SQL queries and just using the active record queries. And the average response time I'm seeing is like 50 milliseconds on 250 million records on a single table. Well, you know, this is sufficient. I have proper indexes and just the Rails core, what's been provided is good enough. Yeah, great example. Now I want to go play with this. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. Let me know if I can help. Yeah. Uh, One other question I have is one of the components of one of the apps that I built is running Sinatra instead of Rails. Mm-hmm. Are there different concerns? Or it seems like it would be mostly the same because it's just Rack, right? Yeah. The problems that you're solving with Docker are less application or f- framework specific. You basically always want to do the same thing. You need to set up your internal dependencies. You somehow need to get your source code mounted into the application. You might need a mechanism to not have to rebuild the container image over and over again if dependencies change. And you want to use environment variables to tell things how they should behave. And that's pretty much the same whether it's Sinatra or Rails or Python and Django or whatsoever. Right. So Dave, you sound like uh, a couple of the words you'll be using sound like you're using a lot of Kubernetes. Is that right? I plead the fifth on it. It's a love-hate relationship. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Love it when it's working. I hate it when it's not. It's another beast that has a lot of complexity in itself for sure. Yeah. And unfortunately, you can't just simply make the change going from like, oh, we're using Docker and Docker Compose, life's so grand. Let's just go and use Kubernetes too. That's Docker because you have to rewrite all your Compose files to be Kubernetes compliant with their API and mm-hmm. you know, getting everything up and running because you're just adding a whole nother level of complexity to your environment. So. I've used it on the development environment. I use it in the CICD environment for spinning up mock uh, environments. Mm-hmm. Like once it passes all the tests, if it's a master, then it creates its own staging environment where you can get a unique URL to go in and test it. And then you can push up in the CI up to your Docker registry to then deploy to production and all that good stuff. Yeah. Are you also using Kubernetes for development or is it like a, a hard line where it's, hey, we use Docker and Compose for development and then we have this Kubernetes manifest that we use for you know production staging, maybe CI, CD? Yeah, I use Kubernetes for the local development just simply because one application that I've worked on has uh, a unnecessary amount of microservices which are all dependent on one another. Mm-hmm. So getting that up and running on just Docker Compose or on the bare metal is just a nightmare. 
So Kubernetes was actually a better fit for the task. Got you. We are currently in the process of uh, switching from ECS to, to Kubernetes and establish more containerized development workflows. And the decision we've made so far was we do not force Kubernetes up on developers. That's kind of like a you know DevOpsy task. Um, Whoever is going to put the production workloads up, so developers are going to use Docker and Docker Compose in development, and then someone else or the team itself, if they want to, is going to write the Kubernetes manifests. But those are going to be be isolated, completely separate steps, so to speak. The thing where things get tricky, which is probably what you mentioned with uh, spinning up all these microservices that depend on each other might be a lot easier if, if a developer wants to say, hey, I want to like run this whole environment on my machine to test something, then yeah, Docker Compose would be would be a nightmare because you would have just this Compose file with, I don't know, 2,000 lines describing yeah. each individual service. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that just goes to the point, if you're going to develop microservices, then do yourself a favor and don't make them dependent on yeah. one another. If you have a microservice which has dependencies, then extract those dependencies out into a gem and then use that in the gem file or something of your microservices application. But don't make one microservice be dependent on another microservice. Your testing is going to become really hard. Your mm-hmm. development environment is going to be really hard. And just trying to keep it all straight in your mind is really difficult. And honestly, you'll spend more time troubleshooting your development environment than you would actually do in development. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree 100%. Don't corner yourself into running everything if you don't have to. One other thing that it, it just occurred to me is that if you're composing sort of a cluster, right? So you have Sidekick and you've got you know some other microservice that you're running over here and then you've got your, your main app on, on the third container, how do they know where each other are in the database, right? They all have to be able to talk to each other. And usually you do that by putting in an IP address or you know some other way of, of addressing the other uh, machine. Yeah. So yeah, how do you do this with Docker? Docker provides name resolution for you. So if you have this uh, compose file with a bunch of services, each service can talk to another service by its name. Okay. Then you use environment variables to inject the name, for example, hey, Rails application, you find your Redis with the name Redis or Redis container, whatever you want to call it. No, that makes sense. The other thing that I wonder then, I guess, is when you move up to like Kubernetes or some cloud system, mm-hmm. then, then you address like the cluster of containers that are all running Sidekick or whatever. <laughs> Same principle, basically. You run a container, you inject the environment variables saying, here's your Redis, here's your database. And there's this manifest that you write basically encodes this information and you can use the same manifest to spin up one container or 500. doesn't really matter. Yeah, so in Kubernetes, you have pods, which are your containers, and then you have services, which kind of sits in front of all of those. And you basically tell your services that you want to have 10 replicas. So for that particular pod, it's going to create 10 pods, and then you have one entry point, which is your services. And if it's something that needs to get exposed to the world or just outside of the Kubernetes instance, then you have an ingress, which points to that service, which then points to those 10 different pods. Gotcha. And then Kubernetes essentially does the load balancing for you. Yep. Yeah, and you can extend that 
like everything in Kubernetes is modular, so you can put a not a networking layer into it or a load balancing mechanism as it pleases you, basically. So you're not it comes with batteries included, but you can replace the batteries with bigger ones if you need to. Gotcha. All right. Well, anything else we should uh, jump on before we go to picks? I think one thing I want to bring up that recently changed my life is uh, scripts to rule them all. One of my coworkers started introducing uh, scripts to rule them all, which is a pattern from GitHub that's basically normalized script names with specific responsibilities. So there's a setup script and an update script and a bootstrap script that installs dependencies, etc. And we started marrying this with uh, Docker. And it's just really awesome that there is this script slash setup thing that just has a couple lines of Docker Compose commands and it just resets your whole environment. And we do the same thing for updating dependencies or installing Docker and it just works out of the box. So instead of having super long scripts that need to check for are you on Linux or macOS or Windows, you just have this, you know, five commands that the script is executing. Super easy to understand. It always works no matter where I run it. So I'm really amazed by that. Cool. Developers are people just like us. And a lot of times they have really, really interesting stories about how they got into a programming language, out of a programming language, how they got into programming in the first place. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have a degree in music or have some affinity for music, or maybe they have a degree in something else like theater, and then they wound up getting into programming for other reasons. I actually used to work with a whole team of people that all had law degrees that wrote code. It's just interesting to me how people have come along in their careers as developers. So we have a show for you. So if you're into Ruby, go check out My Ruby Story. That's at MyRubyStory.com. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Sure. The other day I went to Office Depot, I think it was. I wanted some um, monitor arms. I just happened to pass like an Office Depot and decided to stop in. And I found these... It's called Allsop Metal Art Dual Monitor Arms, which I installed yesterday, and I'm really liking them so far. They're adjustable. They're height adjustable. You can swivel them around. Um, they're flexible. And you can tilt them, do 90 degrees and all that jazz. So I'm really liking the what they've given me so far. The other thing I would say is if you have the opportunity, maybe it's time to kind of take a step back and think of maybe maybe do I need to take a day or two for off work for like mental health or just to kind of rejuvenate. The past few weeks, I've been working a lot more than I probably should have. And I kind of just took a step back and I was like, you know, I'm not taking care of myself in some of the more important areas. And I'm letting some of those areas slip. And I just took a few days off work. Fortunately, I have that ability to do so. And it's done wonders. So I feel I'm going back to work tomorrow. It's like three days off, including the weekend. So I feel like I have a lot more mental energy and I feel rested and feel closer to 100%. Whereas the week before I was just mentally drained and not taking care of myself in the way I needed to. So yeah, take a break. You might need it. Awesome. Yeah, I just got back from vacation, took a week and a half with my family. And yeah, it was really nice. It's so easy to say when you don't have kids, Andrew. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's true. It did involve two days in the car from here to Texas and then two days in the car back. So so if you don't have kids and kids. you have the ability to take off work, then... <laughs> That's what grandparents are for, right, Dave? <laughs> yeah. Living 500 miles away. 
All right, Dave, what are your picks? All right, so I think my first pick is going to be uh, arcade buttons. So I've been having fun building little arcade machines for the kids to keep them out of my hair. And it's been a fun project for them to help me build. You know, I let them use the power tools with guidance. You know, I kind of hold their hand and stuff while we're doing the nail gun and making sure they're not shooting each other. But uh, that's been a lot of fun. And so I have these little battery packs that are completely amazing. And so I was able to power one of the arcades, actually had it timed with it up and running because it's using a bus-powered screen. It's just a small 7-inch Raspberry Pi screen. And that thing stayed on for like 12 hours nonstop. So, you know, I'm thinking about like making another arcade machine, but a little bit smaller so it can kind of like fit in your lap and then just let them, you know, have at it on road trips or something. So pretty cool. There you go. Kind of set up, kind of like a little table or something that just, yeah, I like that. And so my second pick is a power tool pick, but it's a little mini DeWalt air compressor. So it's battery powered and it can give you high flow. So you can inflate like rafts or something like that. But then it also has like a 150 PSI air compressor built into it. And that thing has been super helpful in you know, inflating out in our yard, like some uh, blow up doohickeys for the kids, but then also inflating bike tires and stuff like that on the go. So it's been super helpful. Nice. I'm going to step in here with a few picks. One pick. So on the way back from Texas, we stopped at Four Corners National Monument. Now, one thing that's interesting about Four Corners National Monument is it's actually on the Navajo Reservation. A lot of people don't know that, but I guess that corner of Utah, that corner of Arizona, that corner of New Mexico, and that corner of Colorado, you know, they're, they're all part of the Navajo Reservation. But yeah, uh, it was really cool. We had a good time. And all my kids got to walk around and, you know, buy a little Navajo art because they have little booths set up around the whole monument. And uh, we got the Navajo tacos at one of the stands. They turned out not to be super great. Uh, I know a little bit about I, I guess how how I like them because my brother in law is Navajo, so his family for family events they typically make a big batch of Navajo tacos and theirs are good. So anyway, really really uh, just had a good time. So I'm gonna recommend if you're out in uh, that area, yeah, stop into Four Corners and check it out. We also had a good time in Dallas. There is the Perot. I can't remember exactly what it's called. It was a Children's Museum out there. And, you know, they have all the science exhibits and stuff like that. And uh, my kids had a ball. They had an absolute blast at that. So I'm going to pick that as well. If you're down in that area, lots of really cool exhibits and things to go have the kids touch and play on and walk through and and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, those are my picks. Julian, what are your picks? So my first pick is something that's called Alexander Technique. I've been struggling with some back and neck pain for the past couple of years, like many people that work in front of computers a lot. And um, physical therapy or going to an osteopath is really great. It kind of you know teaches you one specific thing or releases pain in a certain area. I recently discovered this Alexander technique, which is a different approach. So instead of trying to work on a specific thing, it's more teaching you how to holistically think about moving, how you're currently moving, um, how you can move without 
tensing yourself up, basically use your body in a way that it is intended to be used rather than the, these uh, movement patterns and posture patterns that we build up over the years doing things that our bodies would not necessarily design for. So it's you learn a lot about your body, uh, how to move and how to do things in potentially a way that uh, helps you to reduce the pain, get rid of the pain, or just be more efficient in your movements. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a great teacher. She's called Flora, uh, walkinbalance.net. Highly recommend it. And my second pick, a little bit of self-promotion. Uh, check out railswithdocker.com if this episode made you interested in using Rails in combination with Docker or learning more about Docker. And there's also to, if you're using Docker already and you're struggling with, oh, things are not fast enough, check out Blitz. It's on GitHub on codetails-blitz. Codetails like ducktails just for code. And the other thing we're currently working on is something called Donner. That's the German word for thunder. So there's Blitz, Lightning, and Donner Thunder, which is going to abstract away the fact that you're running in containers. So you can say things like Rails console, and it would just execute that in a container or run PSQL, and it knows which container, container to connect to to start the PSQL session, etc. Yeah, try it out. I would love some feedback. All right. Julian, can you remind us where to go to find you and, and stuff online? Um, stuff yeah. Online? Um, the easiest way to find me is if you go to codetails.io. That's like ducktails or fairy tales, but with code. I'm also on Twitter, and whenever I release something, I send out a tweet. That's pretty much everything I tweet about. Um, my Twitter handle is J-U-F-A-H-R. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Julian. Thanks for having me. It was a ton of fun. And yeah, hope to see okay. you guys again. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up, and we will be back next week. Thank Talk you. to you later. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.